Oh yeah. How does that fit in to a cohesive, larger vision? We will always have enough cash yeah. around. Strictly business. Hi, finance leaders, and welcome to CFO Year, your new favorite finance podcast. I'm Patrick, and I talk to finance professionals and companies all the way from seed to IPO. Today, I'm speaking with Chad Martin, CFO at MeridianLink, a multi-channel loan origination system. It makes it easy for US financial institutions to process and provide loans, mortgages, processes, and plenty more. Chad's finance career spans 30 years. He was an investment banker for a decade with Goldman Sachs in the 90s and took his first CFO position in 2004. He's been CFO for companies in the medical, energy, and automotive industries. And now Meridian Link is a modern SaaS business working with banks and credit unions across the United States. We talked about what's changed during his 17 year career, taking Meridian Link public, and how listening is one of the best tools CFOs have. Today's episode is brought to you by Spendesk, the all-in-one spending solution that puts finance teams in control with 100% visibility into company spend. And by CFO Connect, a global community for finance leaders. Join us at cfoconnect.eu and you can email podcast at cfoconnect.eu with any questions or feedback. Chad Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Patrick. Happy to be here. I'd really like to begin, as usual, by just having you introduce yourself to the CFO Connect audience. Great. Thank you. Well, I'm Chad Martin. I'm the Chief Financial Officer of Meridian Link. Um, myself, I started out in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. I took a break to get my MBA and then went back into banking with Goldman. I realized belatedly that I didn't really want to be a banker forever and fortunately found a CF role, which CFO role, which is what I've done ever since. And have you always been a finance person? Yeah. So, you know, growing up, I always had a job. So lawn mowing, snow shoveling, babysitting, paper route, etc. And, and I loved business and money growing up. So I studied finance in college at uh, Texas Christian University and then went into investment banking. So I feel like I followed a pretty straight path into a finance career. And you brought up one thing that I'm always interested in, which was the MBA. Do you feel that an MBA is, is super important these days? You know, I, I think the MBA was great training and candidly, it was as much creating a network. And I know we talk about kind of the network of, of CFOs and other, other folks. And, you know, I really draw on that network um, probably now, much more now in my career than I did earlier in my career. So yeah, I do think it is a benefit. I don't think it's required, but but I think if you have the, you know, honestly, if you have the career flexibility to, to take time off or to, to do it part-time and get an MBA, I'm, I think it's a uh, still a good, a good thing to do. And maybe tell us a bit about Meridian Link. Yeah, so Meridian Link, we're a software company. We serve over 1,900 financial institutions and consumer reporting agencies. The company was founded in 1998 and we went public this past summer. Uh, our mission is to democratize lending, which is basically helping people transparently access credit through our, through our software and the institutions that we, we work with. Uh, and our solutions basically give credit unions and community banks 
the technology that they need to compete with larger financial institutions and the changing landscape of neobanks, fintechs, et cetera, that are sprouting up today. After the the investment banking role at Goldman Sachs, you know, you've you've been a, a CFO for, for 17 years now, and I think some of those roles were in maybe more traditional companies. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, so I was in a uh, in kind of home medical, um, kind of home healthcare staffing, so some non, non-software-based uh, roles. Mm. Do you feel the difference in a software company? I laugh and say, you know, I should have got to software as fast as possible. Um, it's... It's from a finance professional, a very, um, I think, I don't want to say easy because that that kind of uh, isn't right the right term, but perhaps it's a um, it's a more straightforward uh, approach to running a company. Your costs are very much uh, in line with just the people you hire. Your revenues come in at a very high margin. Uh, you have predictable revenue streams, long-term contracts with customers. And you know, you don't have people in trucks driving around getting an auto accident. You don't have people in manufacturing facilities getting injured on the job per se. So it's a, it's mm. a, uh, uh, I, I learned a lot in those jobs and I'm happy I don't have to use a lot of that knowledge in what I do today. And evidently those, you mentioned revenue, evidently that's been going very well because you went public. Uh, maybe tell us a bit about that process. Yeah, so we uh, we had the opportunity to to explore the public markets, um, and uh, it was a, a long journey. The IPO process uh, took uh, we we make it uh, liken it akin to uh, having a baby because it took about nine months of a process from start to finish. And yeah, the company has been performing very successfully, has an attractive kind of profile from both growth and margin um, for for the public markets. And it really was the culmination of the hard work that we've been doing to really take the company um, after it was acquired by Toma Bravo back in 2018. And we've done several acquisitions and integrating those um, and getting it to a place where it really has the uh, profile and the systems and the infrastructure and the team to be public. You mentioned nine months of preparation. Is that nine months from the decision to go public or does that include the kind of research and analysis that would go into that? Um, the, the research and analysis uh, was in front of that decision. It was really the nine months mm. sprint from, hey, we're going to go down this path to actually getting getting to the finish line. And is that paperwork and due diligence or I mean are there actual are, were there more sort of strategic things that had to be done as well um, a lot of it truly is just process um, it's mm. the process of the registration statement and the filing documents but all of the preparatory work at the company to have PCAOB audits complete and having you know the timing for when you're going to have your year-end financial information and then just the multiple iterations with the SEC reviewing documents, processing comments, etc. So it was uh, it was a lot of the process that took the time. And how has your work changed since going public? So I spend a lot more time um, with uh, external constituents, basically investors. So I manage uh, our investor relations function, and you know the process of being a reporting public company. You know, we spend about a week mm. every quarter just preparing for the earnings release, going through the forecasts, working on guidance, 
prepping for the earnings call, taping the earnings call, you know, working on a Q&A for, for the earnings call, getting to, you know, reviewing the materials, getting board sign off. And then once you have the earnings call, then you spend the next week or more calls with your research analysts, calls with your top investors, potentially participating in conferences or doing non-deal roadshows. So it's added a lot of incremental um, activity to the CFO role once we've now, now gone public. Does that leave much time for maybe the big picture strategic work that you might want to be doing, helping to grow the company essentially and add value? Um, I, I would say it constrains the time, right? But but uh, it doesn't you know, crowd out the time that we have to still think. Because a lot of what you're doing in that planning and communicating and forecasting and guidance is having to make sure you're incorporating that strategy because that's that's candidly a lot of what we spend time discussing with with investors is what where is the company going what's our strategic direction so it kind of reinforces your need to always be sharp on on those topics and what does the finance team look like so the finance team so i my finance team here you know includes our accounting group which really provides our gap financials we have an accounting operations team. You know, they're doing the invoicing our clients, collecting our revenues, paying our bills, um, and I have the financial planning and analysis team who does all the reporting and forecasting. You know, and the main goals of the team are really to create consistent, accurate financial information for the business, and really to gauge our success through a, through a financial lens as to whether or not we're achieving our business results. Is it easy to measure the kind of contribution that the finance team is making to the company overall? Um, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I like to say that while we act as the scorekeepers in the business and we report the score in kind of financial metrics for how we're doing, you know, I also believe we can influence and, and improve the score by making our performance better. So obviously we use data to identify areas of our business where we can do better. But I'd say less obvious is that we also seek out and identify areas where we directly influence and improve the outcome. Um, an example of this is that I, I'm a big believer that one of the functions of the finance team is sales. You know, we're always selling the business to outside outside constituents. Now, those can be investors like debt or private equity, the rating agencies, se- selling ourselves to acquisition targets and, you know, wanting them to take our money versus someone else's. And, you know, often it's the CFO who communicates through numbers the future of the business. So as a private company, we had great relationships with our rating agencies and our debt investors, and that ensured we had access to capital at attractive pricing. And as I just mentioned, now that we're public, you know, the role of CFO and investor relations is critical. So you know, I do think we contribute to, to the success in measurable ways. And then there's also just the more subtle ways, like you know, we really try to spend time enhancing the financial literacy of the organization and its leaders and managers. You know, if a manager doesn't understand the components of an income statement, it's really hard for them to understand how what they do is reflected in the financial results. So we like to do kind of 101 classes that really try to demystify and explain what drives the financial health of the business. I can imagine those are really popular. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, surprised at, uh, at how many people turn up when you have them because um, we, we kind of say, hey, you know, I know when we do our overview and review our results, we presume a level of knowledge but don't be shy. And if you have questions, we're going to kind of have this session for folks to to be able to kind of show up and really encourage people to feel like they can kind of say, yeah, you know, what, what's going on here? And then when we have those sessions, pretty much everybody shows up. So it tells you that I do think there's 
a desire or a thirst for people to really try to understand better you know, what, what drives the financials in, in a business. If you're enjoying this conversation, then you've got to check out CFO Connect, the global community for modern finance leaders, like the ones on this podcast. We host monthly events and workshops, have a private Slack group for CFOs, and a one-on-one member matching program. CFO Connect membership is free, but reserved for experienced finance leaders. So if that's you, head over to cfoconnect.eu and apply to join us. I think it's one of those, um, finance in general is one of those areas that really touches everybody in the company and everybody is expected to have an input, but really not that many people have experience and, and expertise in it. So even as a, you know, the marketing manager, you're, you're ma- managing budgets and you're having to try to show an ROI for the work that you're doing, but you may not actually have any basic Excel skills, frankly, or, or um, you know, finance knowledge in general absolutely we'll have a lot of uh cfos listening who are in high growth startups that tends to you know they're overrepresented in our listenership and 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 welcome to you all if you're listening Um, and i'm just picturing them sitting there um projecting themselves into your shoes someone who has been through an ipo uh because of course that's one of the key goals for so many of these businesses i wonder do you still have the ability to move fast and uh, kind of create great things, frankly, as a company once you've gone through the IPO? Or does it? do you have to put a lot more focus on de-risking? Well, we're, we're living that, uh, that changing environment, you know, as we speak. Um, I do believe the degrees of freedom have diminished a bit since, like I said, back in 2018, when I joined as part of the acquisition of Meridian Link by Tomo Bravo, because back then we had so little in the way of systems and process that you could almost make changes literally real time to what you're doing. But now that we have more structure in place, which is fantastic by the way, but given how the business has grown organically and inorganically, there's a greater requirement to ensure that any change in one area doesn't break something in another area. Um, and that's even more so as we talk about being a public company, having more controls in place, you know, moving into our SOX compliance. So while we still seek to move quickly and affect changes that positively af- affect the business, we need to do so with the enhanced awareness that you know, the change that is made is documented, it's propagated through the organization, and it's not in unintentionally you know, making that change, you know, breaking something down the line. But it's a funny dynamic for a CFO, I think, because obviously so many CFOs come into companies um, exactly in the position that you described where there are no processes and you spend the first three to six months just really identifying fires left, right and center and, and setting up those processes. But as you set up those processes, those processes then become even more valuable and necessary. And then as the company grows, you can't afford to not have those processes anymore. You can't Put the toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah, and it's interesting, uh, right? So I, you know, I would say I had the opportunity here to come in on the ground floor and be the architect of the processes. So leveraging the experience of saying, oh, well, I know what not to do. Like, we're not going to do it the way we did it at that last company, which has been great. But, you know, also sometimes as a CFO, you come in and you inherit processes 
that, that have been put in place. And now you're putting out fires at the same time trying to unwind and restart things. And I find that that actually can be more difficult than just having a clean slate to kind of build from scratch. As we mentioned earlier, you've been a CFO for 17 years. Do you see any sort of clear changes, aside from obviously you've changed industries, um, but are there clear changes in what companies expect from a CFO since when you started or compared with when you started? I would say one of the biggest changes is the tools that we use continue to evolve as more specialized software is available. I feel like when I first started, all we had was our accounting package and Excel. And now there's software for budgeting and forecasting and closing the month and paying bills and applying sales tax and expense management and the list goes on and on. And I think this has been great because it's really allowed for efficiencies on the finance team and hopefully reduced a lot of the drudgery of the tasks that used to be manual that are now automated. And I think it leads to better output and work product from the finance team, right? We have better forecasts and scenario planning and better data for making decisions. you know, my first CFO job, we created a monthly paper-based financial package that was over two inches thick, extremely unwieldy, and rendered that, you know, basically was almost useless. But now as we close the books, we send out an electronic flash report and leaders know that the data is updated in the system and they immediately can access the information that is interest, of interest to them in real time. So that's been, I think, one of the biggest changes is just enabling the business to get better targeted information faster because we have these systems that we can leverage. So you're not one of those CFOs then who finds it harder to trust the data now with so many tools interacting and everything. Well, there's an element of still the data has to be clean, right? That That's, that's probably the biggest uh, issue we often deal with because if you don't have good inputs, you can't have good outputs. But I would say, I. De- and certainly we always talk about finding gremlins in the systems we have, but, you know, having 17, you know, interlocked Excel worksheets that you had to refresh that fed each other when you were building your budget, you know, and hoping that some link wasn't updated or broken or some input wasn't typed over manually. Yeah. Having that not be the worry and having an actual system, uh, system of record is, is makes my life I trust the data a lot more. So now it's not a, if there's an issue with the output, it's really going back and understanding, well, what's, what happened with the input versus, you know, worrying that what is wrong is just the models broken somewhere. And so obviously a lot of that is positive. Are there new challenges you're seeing for modern CFOs? Well, I think one of the outcomes of having this better reporting and more flexible tools is that there's this expectation that there can be an endless amount of iter- iterating and what ifing in the financial forecast. And this can be frustrating because on one hand, we do have the flexibility and the power of these tools to allow for better data and analysis. But on the other hand, sometimes I think we get so busy just running scenarios that we don't stop and step back and internalize what we're actually seeing in the information that's already available. So, you know, the more you can do, the more you're asked to do. So it just becomes a, a sometimes a vicious loop. What is your uh, forecasting cadence at the moment? So we basically set our budget at the beginning of the year, and that budget is pretty much you know immutable, immutable for the year unless we do an acquisition, in which case we then rebudget based upon the acquisition that was acquired. 
And then we're always reporting against that baseline budget that was put in place at the beginning of the year. But then every month we're refreshing our forecast. So we have a cadence of once we have the month's results, the finance team meets with uh, their business partners, you know, basically does a budget to actual to understand how did the business perform in the prior month and then roll that through the forecast for the balance of the year. So every month we're coming up with a new view of what the year is gonna look like. And then we're reporting actuals against the budget, which didn't change. And then the prior month's forecast and always trying to improve and get better at our forecasting. Yeah, I'm, I'm now thinking again about the, the kind of status as a public company and whether that puts more pressure on your forecasting because now your forecasts need to be public. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would say, and it's, this will probably resonate with, with the CFOs who are listening, you know, I always in my forecast understood that it's way better to come in a dollar over than a dollar under. Um, and so ensure that we were had the lens of ensuring that we had conservatism in our forecasting so that we hoped to always exceed where we were where we set the bar. Um, you know, now the goal is to frankly try to get closest to the pin and then allow the process of setting guidance and all of that to basically help guide you know, where we then place conservatism or back off the numbers. So, you know, that 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 desire to try to be as precise as possible to predict where we're going to come out just puts more pressure on the business because in the past you always had a little bit of latitude, which if you were a little bit conservative, well, then that just that that cushion was was uh, was appreciated. Now we want to know kind of more precision. And do you have to balance that that forecasting process as well against the kind of hopes and desires, I suppose, of the the other executive leadership of the CEO and um, others like that. If you if you create a conservative forecast, is that an issue? Um, well, if if you're if you know where you're being well, to know where you're being conservative, you need to know where you're actually planning to come out. So I think that mm. you know there is that tension. Right, because now the goal is to know, to be more precise where you're going to, to actually end up, um, and so that then puts a little bit more pressure on on all of us to be more realistic in what is going into the budget, so we make sure we get the right output. So that just kind of drives upstream to other executives and saying, I don't want your conservative version of where you think you're gonna to do to go into the model. I want your best guess and most accurate prediction. And then I'll be the person on the back end who's kind of weighing the balance and providing the guidance. But I wanna know where we where you really think or you know he or she's gonna come out in their business. Think you have company cash under control? You may have a process to pay people back, but company spending is so much more than expense claims. Spendesk gives you one system to replace your old-fashioned company cards, track online payments easily, and process supplier invoices faster than ever. Whether you're a growing startup or you've been doing this for decades, it's never too late to upgrade. Graduate from basic expenses to spend management today. Try Spendesk. I'm going to, to, to pivot slightly now, you mentioned earlier 
the reduced emphasis on kind of drudgery, I think was the word you used, um, in, in finance, thanks to new technology and everything. I, I wonder, what do you think the younger finance team members that you have or new people coming to finance, what do they expect to do on a daily basis? Yeah, well, you know, I think that they really want to spend time, again, minimizing the busy work and actually working on analysis interpretation so that they really feel like what they're doing really has the ability to impact the business and improve the business. So, you know, we've had the good fortune, right, through the IPO process to just really tie a real tight bow to the activity that the team is doing in either, you know, doing the gap results or working on the forecasting and finance leads to the output, which was the IPO process. And so I think they feel like there's a there's a validation that what they're doing every day is contributing to the outcome and the improvement of the company. Which is really no different from any other position. Right. Is that still what motivates you? Yeah, yeah, so definitely. I mean, I want to feel like, again, that I'm not just reporting the score, but but running up the score and making the business better. And having the ability to do that is what, what kind of motivates me every day. Sort of famously at the moment, we have this great resignation um, issue, or certainly an issue if you're an employer, where people are voluntarily, in a lot of cases, leaving jobs because they're either, for whatever reason, they're not motivated or, in a lot of cases, they found a better job. As a CFO, first of all, how do you sort of measure your team's fulfillment and, well, maybe not measure, but how do you monitor that and make sure that the team is engaged and happy? Yeah, so... I definitely rely on my managers who have the most day-to-day interaction with the team to keep the pulse on on the organization and ensure that you know we have good engaging work for folks. Some of that is just making sure that all of your you know, with like you said with the great resignation but ensuring that your positions are filled so that the work is not unduly falling on a smaller group of folks because we haven't filled the positions um, and given the team the support that they need. Um, some of it is just basically, you know, especially in we're kind of more remote first type environment, just ensuring that you have a connection. So I try to make sure that I'm, you know, sitting in and, and participating in, you know, the weekly meetings that are, or monthly meetings that the staff is having to try to get that sense for, do people feel like they're connected to the work that they're doing? Um, and, and then, you know, again, right, like making sure that you're drawing the real straight line between their activities and the day-to-day work that's occurring with the results of the company and the outcome of like going through an IPO so they feel connected to, to the broader business. And, you know, look, I, I have a presumption that everybody on my team will all leave someday, right? Like that's how it goes. So I just want them to feel that the options they have for learning a for growth, for additional responsibility in their current role outweighs what they may feel they'll get somewhere else. And do you think, have you felt more of a need to do this in the last 18 to 20 months, you know, with a lot more remote work, a lot more Zoom meetings, that sort of thing? Have you felt a need to check in with people more or have the managers check in with people more? Absolutely, right? I mean, (laughs) 
we're not in a position anymore where just kind of you can wander by and stop outside someone's office or their cube and ask how's it going and or just have kind of an, uh, uh, an off-the-cuff interaction. So if you're not being intentional, and I'm probably not as intentional as I need to be or would aspire to be, but but having that you know ability to try to connect with folks, even if it's with you know an email or a or a chat, hopefully kind of creates that little opportunity for bonding. Uh, we're going to move now to our quick fire questions. Um, so we ask these questions in every interview. You don't have to answer them quickly. Um, we just call them quick fire questions. So the first is, what is one finance tool you couldn't live without? And please don't say Excel. Um, I, I could live without Excel. Um, the I think you know just really building on what we just talked about is I really think our team couldn't live today without the Microsoft Teams application, right? You know, having that ability to quickly hop on a video chat or get the whole group together. We use it to, you know, share screens, do work, you know, collaboratively. Um, and so it's not a finance tool per se, but if we're not able to stay connected and, and, and function as a team, I don't think we would have been able to achieve what we've gotten done these these past couple of years. If there was one part of your day-to-day you could outsource completely and forget about, what would it be? In the past, I would have said my commute, but now work from home has actually solved that. So, you know, I think it would be all of the flavors of approvals that I'm involved in. So deal desk and purchase order and refunds and vacation requests. And I love being in the know and the detail of what goes on. But I always feel like I'm slowing something up or letting somebody down if I don't handle an approval right away. So if I could snap my fingers and make that go away, that would be uh, that would be what I would do. What's the best advice you've ever received? I would say listen to all the voices in the room, because sometimes the strongest and best advice is delivered in a whisper, not in a shout. You know, in my first CFO role, my CEO said, we have one board member who's very quiet, but don't mistake being quiet for not being strident in their opinions. So when that person makes a quiet suggestion, what's actually happening is they are signaling very loudly that something needs to be done. And finally, which other finance leaders do you talk to or learn from regularly? You, know, you you asked a question earlier about, about kind of the MBA. I would say I have a loose confederation of CFO cronies from business school or folks from Goldman who've gone, uh, who've left banking, or a lot of folks that I've connected with and worked with at various um, companies or, or private equity firms in the, ba- in the past. And we network and share thoughts and best, best practices. And I like to think that someone in the group, you know, probably me, made a mistake one time and learned from it. So we're all happy to share the education we have from, uh, from our misadventures with each other. Chad Martin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on CFO Year. Thanks, Patrick. Really appreciated it. CFO Year is brought to you by CFO Connect, the fastest growing global community for finance leaders. Join us for webinars and workshops, get our expert resources, and be a part of an exclusive Slack group just for CFOs. Join the community and exchange ideas with CFOs from the most exciting companies in the world. Just visit cfoconnect.eu.